0: Thanks, <laughs> um, so this morning is our final um, talk from this mini-series on lament. And can I just recommend to you the talks that have gone before? Andrew and Matt have brought some excellent talks on this subject. They're available from our website. I'm really passionate about lament. Because it's never too early or too late to learn from Scripture how to do this well. By the time I was 21, I had lost three of my friends, my peers. One to illness through medical negligence, another to a road traffic accident, and a final friend to the violent acts of another. In our adult life, Gareth and I have lamented the loss of five of our seven children, one of which nearly took me with him. We've suffered the frustration of seeing unanswered prayers, seemingly, pursuing physical healing, amongst another, other things. Um, Not to mention the ample supply of things to lament in leadership and all that that brings. And I don't say any of that in a claim to be an expert. I'm still very much on a journey too. But I say it because I know that when you're hurting, and something's painful, and someone says, I want to try and speak into that, our immediate thing is to go, well, what qualifies you to have anything to say to me? So I hope this morning that you find me qualified to share what I have found in Scripture, with the added hope that as we learn about lament, some of us may learn those lessons before those storms hit because I am forever grateful to someone older and wiser than me who taught me what I needed to learn. Because lamenting is not a word we use often nowadays, but lament is an act of worship. It's bringing all of ourselves to God. It's refusing to close off areas of our life to God because it's too messy or it's too painful or it's too confusing is declaring that we have faith, that God will move by his power. It's learning to worship in sadness as a true sacrifice of praise. Lament is a testament to the relationship that we have with him because it means we can bring all of our questions, our pain, our grief, our rage, our despair, our doubts, all of our heartache honestly before him. It's been said, life is like a train journey. Sometimes the view is breathtakingly beautiful. And other times we are in a long, dark tunnel and we're not quite sure when it will end. The time to get off the train is not when you're in the tunnel. Nobody wants to get trapped in permanent darkness. And lament is a tool that keeps us in our seat so that the Holy Spirit can get us moving forward again out of the darkness of those tunnels. God wants to keep us talking to him even when we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. He wants that so much that he gives us language to do it even when we don't have our own words. But the danger is that somebody else comes to sit on that train with us, and that is shame. Shame jumps on board and says, well, you should be able to cope. You need to just suck it up and crack on. You're a rubbish Christian. You're pretty much on the brink. You should have more faith. God must be so disappointed in you. But all of that is a lie. Because what God really says is something much more like, dear one, your heart is so broken that you don't even have words. Let me give you some to use. For it's only in our most trusted relationships, the ones where we feel the most loved and secure, do we dare to drop all of the masks to allow ourselves to be vulnerable and raw and authentic and honestly ourselves. This is the gift of scripture. They give us permission to share honestly and mask free, to choose to bring these things to God instead of running away and hiding. That in itself is a sign of robust faith. If we didn't believe that God had the power to bring breakthrough to our circumstances, we would not be shouting at him to do something. Using the words of Scripture show us that we're not alone in our pain or questions. Others have walked this path of faith before us, including the greatest example, our Saviour Jesus. This is Holy Week In Jesus' final week before his crucifixion, he laments. We heard today that Jesus is welcomed into a city where the chorus of people are shouting, he's here to save us, save us. The one that's going to redeem us is here. Yet he enters the city and the first thing he does is weep for the people that do not recognize him or the way of peace. Is that a lament that you share for our cities? Then he's angered by seeing the injustice that is occurring in the temple courts. He's later grief-stricken as he comes before his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And finally, he cries out to his father in lament from the cross. Christ's use of lament in his suffering not only gives us permission to lament, but it also shows us to find hope there. We see from the scriptures that Jesus led a word-saturated life. When Satan tempts him, he quotes from Deuteronomy. When he's carrying his cross, he quotes from Hosea. When he's dying in agony, he quotes from Psalm 22 that we're looking at this morning. And Psalm 31, he is steeped in the word of God. It spontaneously comes from him, enabling him to face every challenge. The challenge for us is not just to read or to have head knowledge, but to have his word dwell richly in us, inviting the spirit to come and shape our thinking, shape our responses under pressure, strengthen us to face all that opposes us, just like Jesus did. So this morning, we'll be diving into scripture from one of King David's prayers in Psalm 22. Firstly, looking at it from David's point of view, but you'll probably recognize the opening words, words of lament that Jesus speaks out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I feel no rest. David is releasing his cry. Where are you? I feel so alone. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In, in you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and they were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. David's reflecting. These are the things I have seen you do. You've never failed your people yet. You're not going to start now. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head, He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. David's releasing his hurt again. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast, from birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Reflecting again. You haven't just moved for the people of God in history. You have moved in my life, and I will remember that. The times that I have felt close to you before. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. There is reorientation. I've seen you move before. I've felt you close before. I'm going to ask again. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are displayed on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes amongst themselves and cast lots for my garment. He's releasing a cry of being overwhelmed, of beastly strong enemies and a weakening body. But you, Lord, Do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Reorientation again, I know you can do it. This lament will not last forever, and I will turn to praise. From you comes the themes of my praise. In the great assembly, before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Reorientation, again, it won't just be my praise, but everybody's. It will be from the poor and the rich, from every nation, every generation for you have done it. These themes of release, reflection, and reorientation are stolen from John Risbridger, who is one of mine and Jack's new tutors, in his book on worship. But they describe so well what we see in the Psalms that the Psalms help us with this process, neither to suppress our emotions nor make an idol of them, but they help us to speak truth to them. And the Psalms are messy just like us. David, he's in this cry and he's reflecting a bit and then he releases a bit more and then he reflects a little bit more. But in that process that's messy, God starts a re- that reorientation process with him. He's changing his focus and his direction. When we're disappointed with someone, we tend to pull away and distance ourselves from them. But this is an opportunity to draw near. After releasing his pain, David reflects. And the Psalms maintain this beautiful discipline that was greatly ingrained into the Hebrew people. The power of remembering. You've been faithful to me so far. Why wouldn't you continue to be? Has God changed? Our default position, and this is John Risbridger again, is to question our faith and to trust our doubts. But the Bible teaches us to flip that one on its head and question our doubts by trusting our faith. When we're confused, let's cling tightly to what we know. But sometimes this is a fight and it can feel exhausting staying in the fight declares that he is God, that he is in control and that we have a reason to hope and not to despair. It's also why we need trusted brothers and sisters who will pray for us, who will lament on our behalf and who will stand with us in the mess, pointing us to Jesus. It's part of God's great plan for our lives because the Psalms also show us that there isn't always a rapid resolution to our problems, but there is always an opportunity to open up our hearts fully to God. The power of lament is sometimes that through petitioning, God changes our circumstances as he brings breakthrough. But it's more than that. It changes us. It invites God to change our perspective on those circumstances. It can turn our anger from being something that is destructive, to a fuel that helps us to bring bring about spirit-enabled change. It's allowing God to enlarge our vision. We have the next slide down. When there is, when you are nose to nose with a boulder, when something huge has landed in your path and seems overwhelming, it obscures your view. It becomes all that you can see. We're releasing those cries of anguish at its presence. But if we step back just a little, if we reflect, our vision is enlarged. The obstacle hasn't reduced in size, but we see it from a different perspective and the wider view. We can see now that there are still routes around, but there could be other dangers we need to be aware of. We can see there's help up ahead, and there's also beautiful spaces that are wide open that are coming. But that boulder still needs to be dealt with. We just have a different perspective with which to do it. Part of enlarging Our view is allowing hope to rise. The Bible has an entire book devoted to lament, lamentations. And in chapter three, we have these words Yet, this is what I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Now, if you've read Lamentations, you know this is one of the few glimmers of hope that we find there, but it's a corker. That yet changes everything. It doesn't deny the pain of the current season or emotional responses to it. But it boldly declares that in spite of our circumstances, we've got an expectation that God's going to meet us and move. Because that hope doesn't come from trying to fix ourselves or our situations, but in calling on and allowing God to fill the broken places in our lives with himself. Lament says... I can't fix this, I can't fix our broken world, I can't fix my broken heart, I can't fix our broken relationships. But I see in scripture what God does with broken people and broken things, how you lead them into healing. And so I'm gonna bring these things to the one that I know can fix them. And with a heart that has been smashed wide open I'll allow him to fill those broken places. Kintsugi is a Japanese art form where broken pottery is sealed back together with gold. And the piece therefore becomes more beautiful, valuable and stronger for having been broken. The same can be true of our lives when Jesus brings that healing touch to us, allowing God to meet us in that brokenness, it's a way of honouring his rightful place on the throne of our lives. Now, I said earlier we were going to look at Psalm 22 firstly from David's point of view, and then from Jesus's. But one remarkable part of David's psalm—the pierced hands and feet, the bony frame exposed, the fatal dehydration—they don't describe illness or injury in battle that David had experienced they point to brutal execution. It's remarkable because David describes crucifixion here. And crucifixion was not a Jewish means of capital punishment. So it's unlikely he'd witnessed it. And David's usual cries of, here's the enemies, come on, God, bring justice, strike them down, are missing. It's as though there's an acceptance that this undeserved punishment is something to be submitted to. All of this is evidence of the Holy Spirit guiding him in his lament. Are we inviting the Holy Spirit to guide us in ours? Jesus, so many generations after David, knew that this psalm was about him and his death, revealing something of the agony of his heart, disclosing what he went through for us. He uses the wares to cry out, but before we come to the foot of the cross, I want us to take a stop off in the garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14 tells us, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it was possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. What a prayer to pray God, I don't want this. I know that you can change this, but not what I want, what you want. You are God whether I get what I want or not. Jesus' heart was wide open to his father. He lays bare his struggles, his agony, his fears. Is there another way out of this? We read the word troubled, but According to Tim Keller on this passage, the Greek word was more like overcome by horror. He likens it to imagining something horrific to have happened to somebody that we love. That nausea, that inability to catch your breath that's choking you, the physical shaking. That's the horror Jesus felt, only magnified, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death this hurts so badly it feels like it might kill me type of a pain. Jesus was facing something beyond physical torment and a gruesome death. He knew he was going to die. He'd been telling his disciples that for ages, but now he's starting to experience what the wrath of God is going to look like. Hebrew scriptures speak of a cup as a metaphor for the wrath of God. The wrath of God's against the human evil. Jesus had only ever experienced the love of the Father, the love of the Spirit, but now he's facing exclusion from the source of all light and love. And I don't know about you, but often we don't like the thought of a wrathful God. We just we just want a loving one. But that in itself is a problem. We can't have a loving God without him being angry at the sin in our broken world. Loving people get angry not because of that situation, but because of their love, of their deep care. Love and justice get activated together. To not have a desire for justice would mean that you just didn't care at all. When God sees people destroying each other, his beloved creation, the people that he loves, the land that he made, he feels wrath. He's angry enough to do something about it and he's so angry at evil that he will go to the cross to buy us back out of that mess. We are so valuable to God that he will die in our place to save us and to bring us back. We as a people tend to go out of our way to avoid suffering Yet Jesus pours his heart out responding to his father and expresses the grief that he is feeling in Gethsemane. There's this inescapable connection between great grief and great love. Grief is the price we pay for love, famously quoted by Queen Elizabeth II in her speech following the 9 11 Twin Towers attacks. Jesus grieves deeply because he loves deeply. He doesn't deny his emotions but he does submit his circumstances and desires to the Father. His immediate desire to be spared is trumped by his ultimate desire for God's will to be done in sparing us. It's the ultimate act of saying I am going to trust you no matter what I'm feeling right now. I'm going to choose to trust that you know best and that you love me. It's perhaps a lesson that we can only learn in the pain and the hope of discovering that he is faithful even when we don't get what we want. Lament acknowledges God's sovereignty when his will looks different to mine and it chooses to rest in his promises, placing our confidence in his faithfulness. Again, Tim Keller says, look at him facing the darkness for you. That will enable you to face any darkness yourself. We mustn't underestimate the darkness that he faced. When we feel that no one else can possibly understand our agony, we look to Jesus. When we feel alone and abandoned, we get that he gets that in the truest sense So let's revisit Psalm 21. If you still have it open in front of you, we're going to just rattle through seeing Jesus in this psalm. He felt abandoned by God. Jesus had told his disciples before, he's not alone because the Father is with me. And yet he cries out from his feeling of abandonment. When he's dying on the cross for the sins of the world, he's dying for everything that separates us from God. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians, Jesus was made sin for us. He was engaged in this mysterious transaction, experiencing what condemned sinners would experience. But even here, he calls him my God. Jesus knows and trusts his Father. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises to the people of God, the true one who saves but he's also the one who felt despised. The one that is a worm and not a man shows how low his value was in the eyes of the leaders of Israel and the Romans that surrounded him. He was mocked as he hung on the cross for those he came to save. Yet from birth, the Father and the Spirit have cared for him. Now Jesus is poured out. His bones are the ones out of joint Like ebbing water and melting wax, his strength drains away, becoming like brittle pottery. The one who is the water of life is thirsty. In order to quench our thirst, the thirst of others, he must be the one that thirsts. He is the one who's experiencing the emptiness that we deserve, that we might be filled They pierce his hands and feet. His bones are on display. He's stripped of his clothing. He's hanging between heaven and earth. The night before Jesus was betrayed, when he was betrayed, he took off his outer clothing to wash the disciples' feet. Now that love has gone one stage further and he's been stripped of his one-piece undergarment, which the soldiers have cast lots for in fulfilment of this prophecy. You see, this prophecy shows us again that this was all planned in advance. There was no lack of control. This was the eternal plan, agreed between Father and Son to save us. So as we come to the end of this psalm and we turn our eyes in praise, we see that Jesus moves from suffering into all the joy set before him. There's signs of this wonderful feast um, that the Messiah will bring. We see Jesus resurrected from the dead, worshipping with believing Jews and Gentiles that would form the church, saying, God has accepted my offering by raising him back to life. There is no more condemnation for us. Jesus was forsaken so that we can be brought home. Jesus was rejected so that we can be accepted. The suffering of his death and the victory of his resurrection guarantee that this time of lamenting will not last forever. For he will bring us into a new creation where we are told every tear will be wiped from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Promises us that in Revelation 21. We get to be these future generations that this psalm is talking about. He's called us to enter into his love, he's transformed us so that we get to be sent out on mission with him to love and to serve others, pointing them to Jesus. Jesus was lifted up on a cross in an act that would draw people to him, that none would perish. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you are the evidence that that cross is the glory of Christ, that the Spirit of God has drawn all kinds of people. And when they hear that message of the cross from you, life comes, and with it, glory comes to God for all that he has accomplished. He has done it. We are both the people who have been told and the people who get to tell that Jesus has done it. Our mission is to tell people from the poor to the rich, all races and nations and to every generation that he has done it. He has brought about our salvation. It is finished, Jesus cries from the cross. Tetelestai, it has been paid in full. There is nothing more for you to add. There is no more condemnation for us because of Christ. So as we turn to respond this morning perhaps if you don't know this Jesus yet this is your opportunity to see what he has done for you, how great and enduring his love for you that he has made a way for you to come and to be in perfect family with him perhaps your prayer will be more Lord I need to understand this, this heart knowledge, not a head knowledge I need to understand in a greater way how incredible your love is for me so that I feel secure enough to bring you all of my lament. Perhaps there are burdens in your life that you need to bring before him, knowing that he loves you, that he is for you. He's wanting to bring transformation to you. Perhaps the lament is on behalf of another. I was reminded this morning as I was praying before I came of the the friends who bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They know that they can't fix him, so they carry him there, they rip open the roof, they lower him down so that he can be at Jesus' feet. Maybe this morning God's placing on you to be those people that will bring others before him, bring their lament, bring the things that need fixing and ask for him to move. I'm going to pray for us and the band will come back to join us. I encourage you to pray, pray for one another, do this as family, be the ones that get to bring your friend before Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you are so good and so compassionate and so merciful that all of that is refreshed every day. Your faithfulness is so great to us. Lord, we thank you that In Jesus, we see you lament. We see your heart broken for the sin of our world. We see you lament over the pain of others. We see you lament as a man before his father. Holy Spirit, we pray, come and challenge our hearts. Lord, what is of you? Plant deep into us, bring that challenge, highlight the thing that you want us to take from your word this morning stuff that's just of me, God, just get rid of that, but help us to to laser in on the things that you want to speak to each of our hearts today. We thank you that when we come to you and lament, you lift our eyes in hope that we know that it will not always be like this. We thank you that you change our perspective, that even if our earthly suffering continues for quite some time yet, We get to look forward to an eternity with you where every one of those tears that we have wept will be wiped away by you, that there will be no more pain, that we'll be in a place of perfect peace before our loving creator. We pray, give us boldness as we approach you. We invite you to to do that healing work that only you can do. Help us to bring these things of our hearts before you, declaring that We are making a statement of faith, bringing these struggles and these wrestles and this grief before you, knowing that you can do something. You are the only place to bring them. And Lord, we pray that out of our brokenness, there will be those wonderful ribbons of gold as you bring your healing touch to us and equip us for greater fruitfulness. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and have your way with us, we pray.